This week on the Backtable Podcast. Carbon dioxide has been used in the epidural space. Air, in general, is an order of magnitude more thermoprotective than fluid. So there are times when we can get very, very close with our zero degree line. But an intrathecal pain pump, particularly in patients who are eligible, what are we doing? We're reducing opioid dose because it's centrally infused. So a lot of those opioid side effects go down. It only has to be refilled every three months, which if you're doing a cryoneurolysis, I'm often saying the nerves will regrow in three to six months. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Backtable MSK podcast, your source for all things musculoskeletal. You can find all previous episodes of our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Stryker's interventional spine business offers the control you need, the flexibility you want, and the quality your patients deserve. Stryker is your partner in making healthcare better. From technology to training, from reimbursement tools to patient education, Stryker is there to support you every step of the way. Innovation is the driving force at Stryker. Their extensive product portfolio for vertebral augmentation and radiofrequency ablation procedures ensures that you have the tools needed to provide top-notch care. But their commitment to advancement doesn't stop there. With recent additions like the Optoblate Bone Tumor Ablation System and FDA 510K clearance for the spine jack system for compression fractures that result from malignant lesions, myeloma, or osteolytic metastasis, you'll be eager to explore all the solutions Stryker has to offer. Learn more at www.strikerivs.com. Now, back to the show. This is your host, Jacob Fleming. I'm here with my friend, Alan Sog. We're live from CIO 2023 in Orlando. We're really not live at all because this won't air for a few weeks, but we're we're on site here. So, Alan, it's good to have you again. How are you? Jacob, my friend, what a pleasure. Great to be back. You know, we've done interviews for Backtable before, and uh, it's so good to finally be in person. At yeah, I, couldn't, I, I had to, I was like, yeah, this is actually the first time we've met in person. It, it doesn't feel like it, but... And hopefully to many more. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so... The CIO is, is a great meeting. It's one of the premier meetings for interventional oncology. Is this your first time here or have you been here before? I love CIO. So it, among the meetings, I find that it's a very practice-oriented meeting. I find that I take tips and I use them pretty much as soon as I get back home. So, And it's a big honor to be able to speak and to add to that content. Absolutely. The the sessions are just stacked. Really looking forward to your sessions tomorrow and some more from the, the Bone Club. But Aside from that, we've got everything from uh, hepatic arterial interventions to lung ablation and everything here. So it's great to have really the world's best here. And I'm really honored that you took the time to sit down with us. So it's, it's been about a year since our first discussion. We talked in our last podcast about building a musculoskeletal oncology service line. So uh, tell us what's, what's new in the last year for you and your practice. Jacob, thank you very much. And it's also a privilege to, to be speaking to you and for our Backtable listeners well, since we last spoke, things have been going really well. We've been continuing to build our practice, both with axial and appendicular interventions, um, working very closely with our orthopedic surgeons. And most recently, I became adjunct assistant professor in orthopedic surgery at Duke as well. Wow. So, congratulations. So thank us, you. What does that mean for, for you and your practice and your interface with work? Really, it is a representative of the close work that we do every day, actually. Even while I was flying here, 
I received edits on a paper that we're writing together, and I received a new consult regarding a potential cryoablation case. So it's, a, it's an ongoing partnership. It's really an honor to, to have that designation. And it also, it also represents, I think, a growing interprofessional collaboration between orthopedics and interventional radiology that we're going to see more of in the upcoming years. Fantastic. Totally agree with that. And uh, I really like the model that uh, you're carving out, uh, similar to some others, such as Wayne Olin, a uh, great episode recently with him talking about his pathway through neurosurgery mm-hmm. as an interventional neuroradiologist. I think we'll see more of this as time comes and pushing the boundaries for what we can accomplish for patients. And one thing, uh, today we're going to focus on cryoablation. Before we get into that, I wanted to uh, ask you about one of those newer things, kind of pushing the boundaries, and that's the use of percutaneous hardware in some of these ortho cases. So I've noticed you are uh, sharing more of these cases. That seems to be something that you've grown over the year. And uh, this is something that's of a lot of interest to a lot of people because it opens up so many possibilities for these cancer patients who otherwise don't have great options. So you tell us just, is is a massive topic on its own, but uh, just tell us about the percutaneous hardware practice, how how that's come about and and where it's going. Absolutely. So the use of interventional radiology techniques to guide instrumentation through corridors that have not been previously utilized is a fantastic partnership. That allows us to work with our orthopedic surgeons. And at a single session, we do such cases where we're doing nerve blocks, we're doing embolization, we're doing bone tumor ablation. All of those would be very challenging to do in an OR setting with just a C-arm. But then with the guidance of our orthopedic surgeons and in some practices, interventional radiologists have a more direct active role. We help with placement of guide wires that allow our orthopedic surgeons to implant screws, and most recently, photodynamic intramedullary rods. Wow. That, that's something I've seen you share. Just tell us a little bit about that. This is some real sci-fi stuff. This is a good one. Uh, this is a good point. Photodynamic intramedullary rods are essentially rods that can be placed like a balloon. So as interventional radiologists, we're very familiar with balloons. Think of a very compliant balloon that fills the space it is afforded within a lytic bone lesion, and then with UV activation, hardens to such a point that it can support instrumentation. So you can put screws directly into an aluminos. The reason the aluminos is great, and this is something we're going to talk about at CIO tomorrow, actually, is think about periacetabular disease and a king zone two, so you're in a zone that needs to be intervened upon if there's mechanical pain. And think about a patient who cannot get uh, Harrington reconstruction. Say there's so much bone loss that they're unable to get a total hip arthroplasty, and they're just not in good enough shape to undergo a much larger reconstruction. You can do a tripod aluminos osteosynthesis to allow that patient to weight bear the next day. And this comes in handy when you have so much cortical loss that cement containment is going to be a big issue. Because if you're using screws, you still need to place cement and you need to have sufficient interdigitation with your threads as well as across different screws. So the Illuminos is a game changer in that regard. Actually, our project on this is going to be seen in two places. One is Dublin at the CTOS meeting. Duke submitted a techniques video and it was selected for presentation in Dublin coming up this year. And the next is one of our residents 
from Duke, Mark Hiram-Naman is going to be presenting at the SIR Virtual Angio Club. It was just tweeted today, actually. I saw that tweet, yeah, and we'll retweet. Yes. Excellent. I um, So just to clarify, so the Illuminos is, is basically kind of replacing the lost structural integrity from the lytic bone lesions. And is it supplanting cement and uh, screws serving the same combined purposes? Yeah. It is. And just to foreshadow Mark's presentation, you know, in that case, you're going to see Illuminoses or Illuminoses placed intentionally perpendicular to each other to allow for friction. But it also you're going to see that the Illuminos expands more where there is greater loss of cortex and it fills that space more robustly. In that case, if you looked, you probably saw a little bit of cement mm-hmm. at the acetabulum. The reason we placed cement in that case was to prevent further tumor ingrowth. And you're going to hear Mark talk more about that case. Well, really look forward to hearing more about this. This is uh, something that's really pushing the boundaries. But, you know, we have a lot to talk about, about cryoablation. So just a little snippet of that to whet our listeners' uh, appetite. But today we have a, a lot of things to talk about cryo. This is something that's continuing to gain popularity, gain acceptance, and uh, further understanding of when and how it can be used. And there's also been some uh, new developments on that. So tell us a little bit about the the newest in cryoablation in terms of new FDA approval, the NCCN guidelines, and uh, about situations where you finding it helpful or... Absolutely. And, you know, for all listeners who are interested in this topic, I would recommend, uh, in addition to listening to this interview, also go back and listen to Jason Levy and uh, Sonny Bagla giving a talk on RF, and that was related to the Opus One study. We know from work by Jack Jennings that um, an intact cortex will tend to uh, oven in RF-based energy. So it for impedance-based modalities, it serves as a thermoprotective barrier for intact cortex. But sometimes you want to treat across a cortex. So say you have a rib met, and it is, um, there is a significant soft tissue component, and you want to treat all of the soft tissue components. You also want to treat that nerve, and you want to see your treatment zone during the procedure. And for all these purposes, I feel that cryo is one of the most, it's something that I reach for every week. I am commonly asked about cryoablation, and to now, as of two weeks ago, have an FDA approval for bone for cryoablation, particularly in the radio-resistant pain setting, which is a direct extension of the motion study, which was, which was a critical, pivotal study in this space, this changes everything. I'm putting this in my, the FDA approval changes everything. I'm putting this in my discussions with referrings. I'm putting this in my discussions with, I have an APP symposium where we're going to be educating regarding IR for cancer pain at Duke. I'm putting the FDA approval in there. I'm putting it in my notes. Because prior to then, we already put the NCCN adult cancer pain guidelines. And that's crucial too. But for listeners who are in settings where they need to, where they need to code their notes and write their notes in accordance with insurance coverage, the FDA approval is your newest, most important tool to use. Yeah, that's, that's hard to understate or overstate uh, what a game changer that could be. Um, having been in a setting for the last year my fellowship is private practice setting. And so we see the ins and outs of insurance every day. It can be a real headache. And then especially when you're trying to 
do something that's right for the patient where nothing else is really going to cut the mustard rib met with soft tissue component, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's great. And so the FDA approval is for, is it for bone metastases or, or any bone lesion in particular? So the exact wording is that this is an FDA 501k clearance and it's for palliation of pain associated with metastatic lesions involving bone. It's a pretty broad indication, so mm-hmm. it really opens up a lot of things, especially for these patients who are got radio-resistant lesions uh, or who have kind of exhausted their systemic options. And that's something we'll talk about um, working in with those uh, lines of therapy as well a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic. So another thing that uh, kind of mystifies a lot of people, myself included, is the use of cement after cryo sure. in sure. lesions. So uh, not every bone lesion, as uh, Tony Brown has told us before, not every bone lesion requires cement. And of course, cement uh, withstands compressive forces uh, very well, but not not so much tensile forces. So first of all, tell us about kind of the pragmatics, the logistics of cementing in a cryoablation setting. Uh, and then also, when would you just leave it alone and not add cement? Absolutely. It's a great question. And big shout out to Tony Brown, of course, legend. He's going to be presenting a uh, recorded cryo, bone cryoablation case at a session tomorrow, which I'm excited to, to look that'll, at. That'll be great. We'll shout out to Tony. And of course, he had a, a great interview before talking about collaboration with Ortho in private practice. That interview, that Backtable interview with Tony Brown, so key. And uh, I really enjoyed all of that interview. And uh, that's a good one for our orthopedic surgeon friends to listen to as mm-hmm. well, particularly early career IRs. The, the Backtable interview there included an, an orthopedic surgeon who works closely with Tony. Dr. So, Lerman, great, uh, great ortho-oncologist, and they've, they've really set up a, an awesome uh, collaboration. And so it, it can be done in many settings uh, outside of academics. Uh, so something I, I like to throw out there when people say, oh, yeah, you know, this is for, you know, very specialized academic centers. You see these patients are everywhere, all over the place, and m- most of these patients are diagnosed in the community setting not and, and may end up referred to an academic setting. Yes. Um, sorry to go off on a little bit of a tangent there, but uh, had to had to give a shout out to Tony and Dr. Laura. And I'm going to take your tangent, I'm going to double it, okay? because it's such a key topic, right? The SIO this year now has an entire session devoted to IO in the private practice space. And we're seeing more and more work, for example, my friend Alexa Levy mm-hmm. building a Y90 program. You know, we're seeing a lot of excellent work in the private practice setting. I'm interested to learn more about what are the challenges and maybe some things are easier in that mm-hmm. setting. Too. Sure, sure. So you asked a good question, Jacob. You asked about, you know, when do we, when do we augment? So I'm going to start with a very simple answer that doesn't capture 100% of the cases, and then we'll go into a nuance. Mechanical pain needs a mechanical solution. So if I have a bone lesion that that is creating mechanical pain, then I will think about augmentation. Look at the cases that were excluded from the motion study. So if you asked me which patients need augmentation, perhaps instrumented internal fixation, perhaps instrumented screws, they're the patients that were excluded from the motion study. Right. They're the patients who have important cortical loss. And I would say that in general, a weight-bearing bone, we need to approach very cautiously. And we need to make sure that we're not predisposing to a worsening fracture once the pain goes away. Because we know from the motion study that pain goes away rapidly after cryoablation. Mm. And that's in, uh, that's in distinction to radiotherapy, which sometimes is not as fast. 
right, there can be a bit of a delay there and, and of course, the potential for uh, skeletal adverse events. In general, I would say most of the lesions that were cryoing, the need for overlapping cryo and cement will come up in the pelvis. Mm-hmm. And we know that our friends at Mayo Clinic have, um, have talked about cryoablation in the acetabulum, followed by uh, cementoplasty. And this topic has been, has been discussed. Some of the challenges you had alluded to, some of the challenges are, one, if you are augmenting with PMMA, which is what we're often doing in cancer patients, by the way, because we need that upfront compressive, uh, you know, we need that ability to, I'm going to start this. Sure. Okay. So I'm going to start from the Mayo Clinic portion. We know that our friends at Mayo Clinic have been uh, talking extensively about overlapping cryoablation with cement augmentation. And the acetabulum is a great location for cryoablation. You have cartilage nearby. You have muscle that you want to minimally irritate as a bystander effect. You may have important nerves. We're going to talk about one of the reasons I love cryo. I love it next to nerves because I can uh, not only... Uh, can I see the zero degree line? But also if there is an inadvertent nerve injury, we know how to counsel for that because typically it's Sunderland one or Sunderland two, mm-hmm. and you're going to have a regrowth within six months. So these are reasons that I really love cryo in this space. But the acetabulum is one where our friends at Mayo Clinic have already talked about combining ablation, cryoablation with cement. Typically we're going to be using PMMA in these spaces we need that upfront capacity to withstand compressive load. So we don't have time to wait for bone ingrowth with an osteoconductive cement, for example. So that's why most of these cases we're using PMMA. Even though the PMMA is exothermic when it polymerizes, it does not like a cold space. And in fact, when we've talked previously about how one of the reasons I love combining RF with cement, particularly in very difficult Think about, and I'm certain you've seen this too, probably some of our listeners as well, vertebral augmentation. One of the walls is, is lysed. Let's say it's a sidewall and you think that there's going to be some leak. One of the ways that you uh, overcome that is you do an ablation of the tumor, heat that, heat that cavity up. Now your cement is going to polymerize faster. Other things that we've done in that space, by the way, have been to balloon and autograph the debris to create a bit of a wall. And I think, you know, Spinejack definitely is is changing the way we approach some of those cases. There was a GVIR article, I believe by Francois um, regarding this. And, uh, but ultimately I believe not to, not to digress too far in that direction. I believe that in cases like that, where you don't have a ton of normal bone to um, interdigitate cement, the SAIF technique, which is still on the other side of the Atlantic, as we're talking about and, this. As we talked about before. And will be discussed at RSNA, by the way. So I'm moderating a session, and the title of the session is Bone Devices That Are Available in Europe and Not Yet Available in the U.S. That's a literal title. So mechanical pain needs a mechanical solution. The places where we're typically augmenting uh, after cryo are in the pelvis, and I would approach long bones with caution. And those are always a discussion. So you alluded to the fact that PMMA doesn't particularly like a uh, cold environment as far as the polymerization goes. And so logistically, how does this work with cryo where you kind of have freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw, and different approaches to the cycles? That How does that factor into the actual uh, logistics of the procedure itself? Absolutely. So let's take a case of a iliac bone lesion. When you examine the patient, 
and you have them stand on the affected side and they lift the other leg, their pain worsens. And when they offload that side, their pain is much improved. All right. You've just proven mechanical pain associated with that lesion. They may have baseline pain. That pain may occur when they wake up in the morning before they've taken their pain meds. That baseline pain before their weight bearing is their biologic pain. And in some cases, uh, depending on where the tumor is located, if it's located next to particular nerves, it can cause uh, neuropathic pain. So each of those, um, when we get a referral for painful bone metastasis, it's actually so important because I may say, well, we're definitely going to freeze this. That's going to cause a cryoneurolysis. But also I would increase the gabapentin in the meanwhile uh, for that neuropathic burning pain component. But the mechanical pain is going to need a mechanical solution. So in those cases, the first thing that I do is I, your success begins with the access. If you create too many holes in the bone, you're going to have to manage all of those holes when you're filling with cement. Right. Ideal to do a single access and use that access for all of your needs. I happen to use I happen to use the Boston Scientific device, so I know a lot about what I do with that device in particular. Mm -hmm. So in that with that device in particular, and tomorrow we're going to talk about how to convert a bone drill access using an Amplatz wire and a peel away sheath. Is this the place that I say it first? Yeah, let, let's let's go ahead and talk about this. Yeah, I've shared some very interesting cases using some. Uh, different techniques, which I love because they're uh, they're really all uh, variations on the Seldinger technique. Yeah, it's a very core IR. Well, what a great way to really, you know, show interventional radiologists that we belong in this space. You know, there is a there is room for us here. I love access, so I use I happen to use the on control device, um, especially when I'm going to be accessing through a cortex in an otherwise healthy person. And I want to maintain my vector without much deviation. Sure. Once I make that access, you can then place the back end of an amplatz, which is extremely foreign for all interventional radiologists. But you grab the back end of the amplatz and land that at the deepest point of your of your bone access, pull out the on control, and then you put in a peel away sheath. And um, through that peel away sheath you can deliver your cryoprobe. And now, what did that achieve? Well, when you try to deliver the cryoprobe through your own control, you need a sufficient mismatch in the length of your access needle and the cryoprobe. And if, it's, if the access needle is too long, then you could have chilling of that outer access needle, which could even cause a skin issue, theoretically. <laughs> And if there's not a sufficient mismatch, then you may not be able to reach your target with the cryoprobe. So this technique of exchanging out for the cryoprobe is a way to uh, is a way to manage that deep targeting problem. But what I will say is now you have your cryoprobe in, but now you do have a hole there without a bone access. So if possible, I typically like to use the shortest on control to get my initial outer access. And then I'll open a second on control that has a longer biopsy throw, create my pilot hole cryoprobe in. And now you're managing that osteotomy, your initial cortical osteotomy, so that you're not babysitting cement as it comes back to that hole and making sure it doesn't leak.
That's great. So have you moved more to that technique away from the peel away sheath or does each kind of have its use? The peel away sheath is great in cases where you don't need to cement. If you do need to cement, you are leaving that hole, that dead space around your cryoprobe. You're going to have to pull it out. You could try to perfect circle your way back in. So you could try to get it on FOSS and land right into it. Mm -hmm. and, I, and if I had to, then I probably would. But when possible, I try, to, I try to plan the case so I'm avoiding that and I'm minimizing the number of holes. In cases where I'm going to cement, where I'm going to cement after cryo, I'm using fast thaw. So as you know, there are, there are four ways to use a cryo probe to generate heat, at least the one that I use. One of them is to just turn it off. All right. So then the body warms up the space. Right. And the way that the cryo probe works, it, it, it has created uh, a heat sink, essentially. And that, that debt, that thermal debt will be paid by the tissues surrounding it. You can speed it up for CX probes. You can speed it up by using active thaw. That'll get you up to about around 70 degrees. Or you can dial it up to fast thaw, which will get you below 100 degrees. And then the final way is to cautery, is cautery mode, which is essentially above 100 degrees. I use uh, fast thaw, and I, in, in a case that I most recently did, I ran it for about 10 minutes. Now, in, in prior discussions that we've heard, the talk has been to thaw for about 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And there's been, you know, there's some resonance to overlap cement with cryo in those cases because it's a lot of room time. Absolutely. So in, in a particular case that I have that I'm hoping to show tomorrow, we did uh, an ablation and then thaw, two freeze-thaw cycles. So essentially freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw, and then thawing for 10 minutes with active thaw and then in with the cement. The cement itself is exothermic, small amounts of cement in early on because you know it's going to be leaky. You're not going to get a very robust fill. Then the exothermic effect of that cement continues to thaw um, the rest of that cavity gotcha. for a good fill. So sort of a cement-assisted uh, thawing. <laughs> exactly. Fantastic. Really like all those strategies. And I believe you said on Twitter that the peel-away sheath idea uh, was uh, uh, given to you by the great Sean Tutton. The one and only. Yeah. So, uh, of course, uh, shout out to Sean Tutton. And I, I love that technique so much because who would have thought the techniques of central venous access or enteral access would come in handy for bone access. And then, you know, if you were ask an orthopedic surgeon, they'd probably scratch their head and say, peel away sheath. But for us, it's like, yeah. We <laughs> you know what I love is, so we were, we, we worked very closely with our orthopedic surgeons and we were talking about the Illuminos earlier, but the Illuminos is essentially the same thing in that it uses a peel away sheath. In, in their literature, they use the term tear away sheath. But it's, it was very exciting when, uh, when we used the Illuminos kit and there was a lot of excitement in the room over a peel-away sheet. You know, it's something we use every single day. Every time we place a perm cath, for example. <laughs> That's awesome. One other thing on here uh, while we're talking about uh, bone ablation, uh, talk about the value of the same session biopsy. So what are the situations where that's going to arise where a patient needs a biopsy of a lesion and it's also a good time to go ahead and ablate? Absolutely. So think about... Think about a case where a person has uh, a less radiosensitive tumor histology and uh, they have undergone radiotherapy. They're on active systemic therapy. Cryoablation is not ionizing. We're performing the procedure through a five millimeter scratch in the skin. We're not worried about wound healing. So we can essentially overlap rapidly with, without interrupting other care plans. In this case, 
say that it's an oligo-unresponsive lesion, through the same access, we can obtain a soft tissue, we can obtain a soft tissue biopsy of a soft tissue component or a biopsy of the osseous component, which allows for biomarker analysis. It may influence a patient's eligibility for clinical trial. Sure. At Duke, we see many patients actually who are on clinical trials who undergo cryoablation for pain relief to keep them on the trial. So we are enabling ongoing care plans by treating their pain. If I'm doing a biopsy of a soft tissue component, I make sure to word it as such so that the tissue doesn't undergo decalcification, which will decrease your, your yield, mm -hmm. your cytologic yield. Similarly, if I'm biopsying, and I'm sure other people who are listening have done this too, if I'm biopsying a purely lytic bone lesion, I'll often use a soft tissue biopsy device right. for that. Yeah, I've definitely found that to be uh, much easier than trying to use, uh, you know, uh, on control, for example. You just use a Temno or whatever your preference is uh, through your coaxial access. Exactly. That's one strategy. To exactly. Great. And so typically those those sessions are a uh, patient with oligometastatic disease, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps is progressing on current treatment. And so you have the simultaneous goals of getting pain relief. Absolutely. And so it saves the patient a trip. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. And you just alluded to the value of our treatments not interrupting mm -hmm. systemic or, uh, you know, chemotherapy or radiotherapy. I think this is such a crucial component because a lot of the, in, in talking with some colleagues, uh, a lot of the things that are coming out, bone tumor ablation and uh, spine uh, in particular, uh, there's sort of a notion that, oh, well, you know, uh, XYZ oncologic specialty is not going to want to collaborate with us because it's going to step on their toes. And uh, that really seems not to be the case. You know, I see these as uh, complementary approaches. And so tell us about that, the value of uh, not interrupting these, and then also the synergy that comes with uh, working with those. And uh, I know you, you want to talk a, a little bit more about also collaborating with those specialties. So if you'd like to talk a little bit about all of that. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's imagine that you are an early career interventional radiologist and you just started at a new practice and you are interested in growing bone cryoablation, which is a great idea because right now you already have the NCCN guidelines in your favor. Right. For a painful bone lesion, we used to have to explain that this is a, a good technique, an emerging technique. Now we just turn to section pain-K and pain-M, and we're in there. And that is, and that is, that gets you most of the way with most oncologists who are deciding what to do with a patient. If you are in a practice that that you are doing the biopsies, I think it's important, you know, do the biopsies. But then keep in your mind which one of these lesions you might also have been able to do ablation. And I would recommend having a discussion with oncologists when they're receptive mm -hmm. or perhaps mention to, a, mention to them, hey, I did this biopsy. Uh, the patient's having a lot of pain. You know, we're happy to, to help navigate for you this patient. Radiotherapy is an important tool. You know, it's, it's, it's been the default tool at many institutions. And the FDA clearance is for radio-resistant uh, painful bone lesions. So I personally, I'm not opposed to radiotherapy for bone lesions. I actually, I, re I receive a high number of referrals from our radiation oncologists. And I do think it's so important to collaborate with them. 
particularly for some of our rib lesions that may approach the spinal cord. You know, ablation very close to the spinal cord is problematic for us. And they, they, have, a, they have a better time getting into that margin. So I, I, I actually collaborate very closely with our radiation oncologists, and I give them a, a lecture every year regarding cryoablation with updates. You mentioned about the synergy. So it, it's an entire topic on its own regarding the abscopal effect and immunotherapy. So I, I will just mention it and then move on to the next moment. But I do, I do think it's important, uh, you know, we have, we have actually collected our data regarding our experience with uninterrupted systemic therapies and cryoablation, which we're hoping to submit very soon. Fantastic. Love, would love to hear that. It's such a crucial topic, as, as most of us know, and, one of the surgeries require uh, pausing in systemic therapy. And I'll mention to you, the question comes up at tumor board. It's how long do we have to hold the chemo for your procedure? It's, it's not at all. What are the caveats? So if someone is neutropenic, I would rather wait. If someone has an active infection, yes, it, it definitely needs to be discussed. Most of the time when we do procedures, they have immediate pain relief, mm -hmm. but it's such an important component to, to counsel the patient, particularly if you're ablating next to a lot of muscle, that there may be a pain spike. And so providing the patient with sufficient Counseling will help ensure that everyone's on the same page so that post-cryo, we know there's a small bump in pain score and then that's going to come back down. Right. Yeah. And th this reminds me of uh, Jack Jennings had discussed before, sometimes with ablation of these larger uh, desmoids, a slightly different topic, but these patients can go into rhabdomyolysis. And mm -hmm. so being aware of the uh, side effects, uh, the short-term side effects of the ablation, really important. Have you found any uh, medications in particular? You mentioned gabapentin for the neuropathic. Sure. Uh, any others in kind of the peri-interventional uh, setting uh, that are helpful for these spikes? Well, that's a great question. And you mentioned rhabdomyolysis as well, which is fresh on my mind, having done a large, and by large, I mean a 10 ice force desmoid cryoablation. <laughs> so it's a large desmoid cryoablation. To the point where I admitted the patient afterwards for fluids, and I discussed with our nephrologist, healthy patient, healthy kidneys, I discussed with our nephrologist regarding allopurinol, and we monitored renal function post-procedure. So um, for anyone who is undertaking a very large ablation, admission and fluids might be a little too aggressive, but if, if it's something that's uncommonly done, it might, it might strike the correct note in terms of safety with your oncologists. You asked a good question about pain, periprocedure pain. Many of these patients, many I have the privilege of working with an outstanding, perhaps one of the best palliative care divisions in the country at Duke. So many of our patients come to us from that division, and they are all on all the right medicines. So they're typically already on gabapentin. But take a look at the dose. Oftentimes, there's room for up titration. Mm -hmm but also be aware that it can cause drowsiness. Right. So, and that, that can be dose limiting. Absolutely. Oftentimes when I'm writing for, um, if say that I'm ablating a large rib lesion <laughs> and I'm going to be ablating the intercostal nerve, but I want to prevent a neuropathic pain spike. If the patient's not already on gabapentin, I actually personally prefer Lyrica, a little bit more reliable bioavailability and easier to take fewer pills 
And I personally start most patients off at 50 milligrams nightly for that. Nightly because it causes drowsiness. And I ask them to avoid overlapping that directly with any opioids. Opioids we still use, but as you know, one of the main reasons cryoablation is so relevant now is we're trying to reduce opioid use mm -hmm. because we know that the need can increase over time, constipation side effects, drowsiness side effects. When some of our patients have weeks to months left, that time is so valuable. So any cryoablation or actually any procedure we can do to increase quality of life as they interact with their family or their loved ones, that's really uh, valuable. So decreasing the doses of opioids is one of our missions. Absolutely. Um, having been uh, working with patients who've been in chronic pain uh, pretty much every, every day for the last few months, uh, one thing that I've seen a lot of that I have only really kind of read about previously is, is the notion of opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one of those components of uh, opioid therapy that shows it's, it's really not a benign therapy. And so, uh, especially in, in the context of a more palliative setting with the oncologic patients, uh, the goal, as you said, is to maximize quality of life. And, and unfortunately, uh, increasing the dose of opioids can have an unintended effect of uh, causing hyperalgesia, things that weren't painful before suddenly are, some things that aren't noxious stimuli, like just being tickled or uh, pushed on the, the arm or something like that can be exquisitely painful. And so uh, I, I agree with you 100%. Opioids obviously have their place, mostly in the context of uh, acute uh, post-procedural pain. And a very important point I'll add. So we we're talking about how do we manage various pain meds in the post-bone cryoablation setting. Mm -hmm. You know, working with our palliative care doctors, everyone should check in with their local palliative care team. But one of the typical ways that we approach is patients who have an immediate improvement in their pain, we cut the short-acting opioids, but they continue their long-acting opioids. And then our, our palliative care doctors are wonderful and they will link up and they will further taper down those opioids. Excellent. So um, moving into the topic of uh, pain specifically, and uh, we've talked mostly about bone lesions so far, but of course cryo has gained a lot of uh, popularity and momentum for cryoneurolysis specifically. Mm -hmm. This is something you've spoken about extensively in terms of the uh, Sunderland classifications, kind of intended degrees of nerve injury. Uh, this is obviously a huge uh, topic on itself. Uh, David Prologo has really done a, an amazing job spreading the gospel on this as well. So let's let's talk about something you brought up before, which is the single session nerve block and cryoneurolysis. I really like this uh, concept because one of the things I hate the most is having a successful nerve block for a patient and then saying, okay, well, we'll see how it does and we'll see you in a week when we know by that point it's definitely going to have worn off mm -hmm. and you're going to be uh, back to square one with the pain. Tell us about uh, the setup for doing a single session nerve block. Absolutely. So the first thing is actually the, and big shout out to, to Dave Prologo, mm -hmm. his back table interview, vital on this topic. Basically a must listen. Yes. So uh, I would say... The first thing, people, people listening to this who are already involved in this space will know that billing for nerve blocks and nerve ablations is very region specific. And the documentation of a successful nerve block as a justification for nerve ablation 
is crucial. So the documentation of at least two out of 10 improvement in pain with a nerve block is something that I routinely do. And early on in our practice, we would stop at the block. And Dr. Prologo has also mentioned in the past that it's so important to do the block to document what you're about to freeze. <laughs> I think that's particularly important for uh, cases where you have nerves that may have a motor component. So the patient can get used to that and test drive it, make sure that this is something that they would like. One example of that, for example, is anything in the extremities, anything in the extremities. But I'm going to hearken back to the rib. Yes. Because the rib, why are we going to see a lot of rib? We already see a lot of rib metastases. You know, if you look at the data on um, bone metastases, so we already know that after vertebral bodies, the pelvis and sacrum being the most common sites, then come the femur and ribs. Mm -hmm. So we see a lot of rib metastases and these patients often develop pathologic fractures. They have neuropathic pain. I'll throw in there that they often have a snapping sensation that's more proprioceptive. Even though we're able to treat the neuropathic pain, we're able to treat the biologic pain, this bone does not need cement. But that snapping sensation sometimes persists particularly if there's uh, a continued non-union. In cases where we're doing these uh, procedures for pain relief, particularly where the patient is driving from uh, a distance. So at Duke, I'll see often patients from a one-state radius even who drive down. I will do the nerve block on the table of those intercostal levels. That serves as regional anesthesia for the procedure. And it also serves as a diagnostic nerve block. And if they have pain relief, then I document that separately in the same dictation. I say the patient had X out of 10 pain relief. Usually it's complete pain relief on table, which was consolidated with cryoablation and in particular cryoneurolysis, if that's the case. In some cases, say that you have a, a rib metastasis that's involving a single rib, but there's a soft tissue component where you believe that the adjacent intercostal nerves may be collaborating for pain generation. In those cases, you may opt to do a diagnostic nerve block of those peripheral nerves, make sure that there is some pain relief so they are contributing, and then go for ablation of the tumor and cryoneurolysis of the levels above and below to ensure complete pain relief for this patient. And it's a case-by-case -case basis, but in those cases, I would, I would actually um, consider that a bone cryoablation with same session cryoneurolysis. In cases where I'm ablating the bone, but I know I'm ablating the nerve at the same time, mm -hmm. then I just say it's a bone, then it's just a bone tumor cryoablation. Sure. Essentially. Nerve ablation is kind of incidental. It's incidental, but it's included in my post-op plan. Sure. So I'm, those are the patients that I'm making sure they're on gabapentin. They're the patients that I'm making sure to counsel about nighttime worsening of their pain, potentially neuropathic pain once the nerve block wears off. Mm-hmm. And so these uh, single session procedures, I, I imagine you're doing them under moderate sedation so you can get an assessment of the patients. Moderate sedation is, I would say, almost all of the procedures that I do are moderate sedation. And with a lot of the regional anesthesia techniques that we use, with cryo, it's very doable. I think with with RFA, I'm, I'm often surprised, you know, I, I, the RFA cases that I've done have not been as painful as others have said they could be. And particularly, you know, we do a ton of RFA in the vertebral bodies. 
as well. But I would say that uh, moderate sedation, and in some cases, even local, mm -hmm. because I'll tell you, you're not going to just see patients who are very healthy patients. You're going to see patients who have pleural effusions, cardiac toxicities from their, from their chemotherapies, maybe ECOG one or two. Maybe this person is going to be going to hospice in several weeks. Anything you can do to minimize uh, a risk of an over-sedation event is key. And I would say one of the biggest pearls, having done this for several years, is patients who are on chronic pain medicines should and perhaps must take their routine dose of pain medicines. You know, speak about this with your team and with those who are doing your sedation. But in the cases where patients arrive and they didn't take their pain medicines because they didn't want to mess anything up, you know, it's, all, it's an honest mistake, they are in a deficit. And it is sometimes impossible to sedate those patients for the same... Very difficult to catch up when they're already in the hole, so to speak. Exactly. The same allodynia, hyperalgesia items that you mentioned. So I would say that it's so important that patients take their routine pain medicines, show up on the day of the procedure. But if someone is very tenuous from a respiratory standpoint, I have done many of these with purely local. I believe this is something that's done uh, a bit more in, in Europe uh, for whatever reason. Uh, I think uh, some of the patients over there must be very hardy. But as you said, it is, it's very doable with our uh, regional anesthesia techniques. I've definitely uh, learned a lot uh, from over the last year or so, uh, taking a page from your book and, and looking into the regional anesthesia literature, of, of which there uh, is a lot. There's a lot of great resources out there. And these are things that are easily integrated into our procedures. I would say that um, most of these, and just to stay on the topic of rib cryoablation, we're going to have to think about the skin. Right. We want, we must avoid ulcerating the skin because that can, that can create an off chemotherapy period. So that, that can be a huge issue with the oncologists. And ulcers from cryoablation can take a very long time to heal. The way that we protect the skin, uh, there, are, there are many ways that have been discussed. I don't routinely use gloves filled with various fluids. I, I see that often done. The most common thing that I do one, if it's close to skin and I'm treating a very large area, say that we have multiple ribs at play, I don't want to continuously push the, push the patient in and out of the gantry to scan along the Z-axis to look for cryo injury. I'm usually double gloved. I'll sometimes take off my outer glove to feel the skin to see if it's cold. More often than not, though, I'm using ultrasound. Because with ultrasound, rapidly, I can scan the entire zone of interest, particularly look at the hubs of your probes. And, and if you are using, um, depending on your vendor, there is a skin safety marker line, actually, on the cryoprobe. The ones that I use have a marker that, dem that demonstrates skin safety. Make sure that if you are unable to um, adhere to that line, that you're paying extra close attention to the skin. If you are using ultrasound, you want you can approach, and Dr. Kalstrom has given many talks on this from Mayo Clinic, you can approach the dermis, but you don't want to go any further than that. If I'm injecting hydrodissection fluid that has contrast or perhaps just normal saline, and I'm unable to separate the skin, that's a problem. Then all the probes shut off until we can warm up that space, sometimes with my hand, 
with my warm hand directly on the skin, whatever's fastest. I like using fluid in cases where there's a large area. So the pro is you maintain a sonographic window. Here's the con. And anyone who's done this knows what I'm about to say. At the end, when you're going to close, there's water coming all out of all of your dermatotomy. So there's saline. And and if you're using, I, I like to use glue and a Steri-Strip and the glue just doesn't stick yeah. because you're, you're pinching it and then you put the glue and then you let go and then some more fluid comes out. Right. And that fluid is good, by the way, right? I know Afshin Ganji presented a case a few years ago regarding uh, a patient who had a large ice ball, but then spoke about how that ice ball persists and it can actually create issues in recovery if there's bowel or skin contacting it. You know, it, it takes about 30 minutes for some of these ice balls to completely thaw. So particularly in someone who is frail, who has unhealthy skin, we want to make sure that we are not having them lay on an ice ball and potentially having a cryo injury in recovery once you've already walked out the room. So I don't mind having some of that fluid under there, but just take note, it may be difficult to put the glue in the steries. And in some of those cases, you may end up just putting gauze and a tegaderm. And in cases where I predict that, and as it allows, I love carbon dioxide. Yeah, that's going to be my next question. A great, great uh, utilization of uh, pretty low tech. <laughs> Here's why I love carbon dioxide. First of all, if the patient is on, so I'm basing this on the publication by Maybody et al. from Sloan Kettering. I trained at Sloan Kettering. So this was taught there before it was published. And we would use room air, HEPA filtered rooms. And room air is, is acceptable. Air is an order of magnitude more thermoprotective than fluid. So, and that's based on the published study by Majid Maybody et al. I love carbon dioxide because it's filtered. So if I want to reduce any chance of any kind of an infection, instead of room air, I'll reach for the CO2 commander. It does reabsorb a little more quickly. You're gonna do touch-ups. I'm usually sending it through a Ganji HydroGuard needle which as you know, it's a, it's a hydrodissection needle that if you pull back on the hub becomes sharp. And if you let go, it, it's blunt. So I can bluntly dissect without risking coming out the skin unintentionally, okay? It has a recessed side hole. So unlike a trocar needle, you're not worried about taking a core of fat and then clogging your needle with fat and potentially not being able to deliver. I also love CO2 because you cannot freeze it. Right. So how many times have we placed a hydrodissection trocar next to our ice ball and then halfway in, perhaps at the most important half, it's, you, you realize it's not dripping. And now suddenly you're, you're trying to figure out, maybe get a second access. But that's why I love gas, because you can always deliver. So um, that setup has served us really well. I, I do love carbon dioxide, but you're going to lose that sonographic window. So that, that was one thing I wanted to ask about as well. You alluded to basically using CT and ultrasound for different uh, perspectives of this. Uh, would you say that you, that's your typical setup for most of these cryoablation cases? Oftentimes, I, I've moved more towards using carbon dioxide and CT only. But if it's a very large zone of ablation, then sometimes I want to go for ultrasound just so I can rapidly assess the entire zone. Gotcha. And on that note, what's your preferred technique for an uh, intercostal block or mm -hmm. neurolysis, would you do that under ultrasound or CT? Yeah. Pluses and minuses to both. Pluses and minuses to both. Ultrasound is fast, very fast. 
actually. You can usually see the artery in some patients who have large vessels. You can avoid poking it. You can see the lung in real time. With CT, I love putting contrast in and just watching that it goes centrally towards that paravertebral space. And sometimes you can you can block more than one level from a single injection point just by watching it spread up and down that paravertebral space. When I'm doing intercostal nerve blocks, I'm typically putting in lidocaine with epi. The epi is our biomarker for a venous leak. So I'm, I'm watching the vitals as I'm injecting. I'm injecting small aliquots and I am looking for tachycardia, which is my first sign that this is a venous injection or that there's rapid uptake. If that's the case, then we change the geometry around. I like to mix contrast about a one to 10 uh, ratio and I like to see a blob form. You know, in IR, I love talking about nerve blocks in particular to the IR groups because we hate blobs. <laughs> Whether it's a PBD or a nephrostomy, we do not want to see a blob. We want to see linear structures. But with nerve blocks, the blob is our friend. The blob is not washing out. And a blob means that we are delivering this injectate on target. So using epinephrine as a biomarker of central leak and using injecting small aliquots, particularly in your cachectic patients who have low muscle mass, those are the ones who are going to be at risk of lidocaine-associated systemic toxicity last. You're going to want to have IV intralipid in the department in any cases where you're doing nerve blocks. Although we do a high volume, I personally have not needed to use it yet but it's important to have last on in the department if you're doing nerve blocks. Oftentimes for patients who are going to be uh, driving home that day at a and they live at a distance, I'm adding in bupivacaine. So it's about 50-50 Lido with Epi and bupivacaine. You would think that you'd get the best of both worlds. So you get, you would think that you'd get the fast onset of Lido and the long acting of bupi, but when you mix them, they competitively inhibit each other. So you get a mixture of between, you get something that's a little slower onset and a little longer acting. In my experience, if I'm doing a first case of the day, I'll say that this nerve block will last until bedtime. Mm -hmm. At which point, don't be surprised, once it wears off, you will have a slight worsening of your pain compared to baseline. So that's my nerve block strategy. Steroids, mm -hmm. I, I love steroids. Mm -hmm. I use liquid steroids as a space. I don't want to take any chance of a, of a vascular accident with particulates sure. personally. Mm -hmm. So I will use liquid dexamethasone. Mm -hmm. I'll stick to a dose of 10 milligrams total at one session across all sites. Awesome. But I will often, if I know I'm a bleeding nerve, then I will give IV decadron mm -hmm. 10 milligrams at the beginning of the procedure. If their kidneys allow it, I'll give Toradol. Okay. Max dose is 30 if you're going IV, and I'll give that during the procedure as well. Got it. And so is the strategy there to uh, decrease the chance of uh, postoperative neuritis? Yes. The, the thermal-induced neuritis is what we're trying to minimize to right. allow for the fastest possible recovery from that. Yeah, this is, this is a difficult topic and, and one that's it's almost paradoxical in a way that we're using ablation technologies to decrease pain, but you mm -hmm. can sometimes worsen it if, if the nerve gets irritated and... As far as I'm aware, there's not a great way to predict when that's going to happen. Um, so I like the use of the steroids too. Uh, and I like the, the systemic uh, additions you mentioned as well. I mentioned 
you know, let's remember that these steroids can cause a demargination. Mm-hmm. So they may have a neutrophil bump. And so oftentimes I will clear, I often write to the oncologist or the referring physician. We perform, you know, successfully this procedure. They're currently pain-free. P.S. We gave steroids. So if you see a bump, you know, in the neutrophils, no concern. That's expected in this setting. Most people already know it. Yep. Many patients are already on steroids for many reasons, increasingly used around chemotherapy as well. Absolutely. And just an aside to that, um, patients with cancer, uh, metastatic cancer, can also have uh, non-malignant causes of pain, right? And so I uh, see this quite frequently with uh, vertebral insufficiency fractures. Mm-hmm. Uh, patients who um, you know have just gotten to a point with their bone mineral density where they start having so-called benign uh, insufficiency fractures, which as you know, are anything but benign. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's one thing that I've definitely learned is to be uh, quite vigilant about that. You know, patients, even if they don't have a MET at that site, they may still have an insufficiency fracture, sacrum, pubic ramus, vertebral body. Uh, these are all things that can happen. A lot of these patients are a bit deconditioned. They may fall, get rib fractures and things like that. So mm-hmm. we're talking mostly about ablating uh, direct oncologic causes of pain. Uh, but the the same techniques that we talk about for vertebral augmentation and then other types of uh, nerve blocks and ablation therapies can equally be uh, applied here. Absolutely. And how, how important is it? You know, I know Doug Beal talks about this a lot and he's inspired many of us to learn more about bone agents and making sure that bone health is uh, addressed and is on everyone's problem list, Absolutely. you know, that, that we're treating. Absolutely. One other topic I want to discuss, we've talked quite a bit about ribs today, and mm-hmm. uh, this, this is such a challenging topic because it's a challenging area, yet very common. Yeah. You and I had discussed a case a few months back about a very um, a challenging, it was, it was mucinous colon carcinoma met mm-hmm. uh, into the rib, and it was quite central. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you explained that it's often quite difficult to get complete pain relief. It's difficult to get central enough to that. Yeah. And so this brings up something that I just wanted to, um, again, you know, sort of get the IR community in particular to think about a little bit more as the mm-hmm. neuromodulation techniques. So true. Now, is uh, so in certain lesions, is this something where you've collaborated with uh, your interventional pain colleagues in terms of uh, intrathecal drug delivery or neuromodulation? So this is such an important question. I guarantee that every IR who's doing bone cryoablation will run into this situation. And it will typically be, the story will be something on the order of, we've, we've reached maximum allowable dose of radiotherapy. We're still having pain. However, as you know, patients are living long. One of the main reasons we get called to do this is because patients are living longer due to successful systemic therapy, but they have these problematic skeletal metastases that limit quality of life. So this person still has a relatively long life expectancy, let's say, mm. but they have a tumor that if you were to ablate it, and do you remember in that case, wh- where in the spine was it very close to? Uh, you know, I think this was about the level of T9. Yeah. So kind of lower thoracic spine and, you know, it was involving uh, both the, the medial rib and the pedicle getting close to epidural space as well. It's a tough spot. I see a case like this every month. I just saw one last week. And in these particular cases where, you know, there's not a surgical option, there's tremendous amount of scar, the patient is on a clinical trial or on systemic therapy that's otherwise working, so there's a desire to not interrupt that, and we've maxed out on radiotherapy, okay? 
one of the paradigms for getting a great pain response is treating the central most pain generator. Mm -hmm. So if we're treating peripheral to pain generators, we might be treating some of the sources of pain. For example, if there's muscle involvement, again, talking about this case, but I always counsel that it is time for us to think about getting central to this pain generator with an intrathecal pain pump. And I would say that I refer patients, there are many IRs, you know, I know Doug Beal is, you know, a visionary in this space and he places intrathecal drug delivery systems. Quite a few. And technically it is, it's, it's more of a logistical question and a practice question as opposed to a technical question. Right. For anyone doing any of the procedures we've talked about, pain pump implantation is a natural extension of your existing skill set. But I would say that I refer patients to intrathecal pain pump placement weekly. It's such a great option. One, uh, as I've had more experience with it, I've really seen the power of it. And one thing that I'd like to impart to others is I think there's a notion that uh, going for the pain pump is, is almost sort of throwing your hands up in the air and saying there's kind of nothing else we can do. But it for many patients, it can really be life-changing. It can be the one thing that really gets their pain under control. And it also doesn't uh, obviate other potential therapies that we can use as well to uh, clean up the pain. But in some of these cases, we just have to realize it's, it's too dangerous to ablate near the spinal cord to get the centralmost pain generator. And uh, using intrathecal therapy is a great way around that. I totally agree with you. Take a look at cases that have been published by Dr. Tomasian. Mm-hmm. Carbon dioxide has been used in the epidural space. And we already mentioned, you know, air in general is an order of magnitude more thermoprotective than fluid. Mm -hmm. So there are times when we can get very, very close with our zero degree line. But an intrathecal pain pump, particularly in patients who are eligible, what are we, what are we doing? We're reducing opioid dose because it's centrally infused. So a lot of those opioid side effects go down. Mm -hmm. All right. It only has to be refilled every three months, which if you're doing a cryoneurolysis, you know, we didn't, we didn't mention too much about this, but I'm often saying, you know, the nerves will regrow in three to six months, particularly for, say, we're doing a rib cryoablation. If that, if the cancer is gone, but the pain's still there, we may still need a long-term solution. This will vary based on place to place, but there are criteria that need to be met for someone to get a pain pump. One of them is that typically in our institution, it should be cancer-associated pain. And we can talk about the equivalent for non-cancer pain. But to complete this thought, cancer-associated pain and the survival, the amount of survival is key. Patients need to, you know, we want patients to live long enough to see the benefits of this pump because it is a procedure. It is done typically in, uh, you, know, you know, in an OR setting at least for the ones that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure that, that patients will benefit from that. There are challenges regarding hospice coverage mm. for procedures, including cryoablation. Yeah, this, is a, this is a very big issue. And so the overall goals of care need to be discussed and everyone needs to be on the same page. Sure. Well, Alan, we've covered a lot of ground today, a lot of excellent topics. That's all I have. Do you have any further thoughts you wanted to cover before we end? Jacob, it's always my pleasure. You know, I feel like this is such a great platform to kind of share a lot of the information for what we're doing. And I just want to make sure that people know that I'm a resource so people can reach me. 
with any questions. And I'm very happy to answer those questions. Well, thank you so much, Alan. Before we finish, I just want you to say, what are you most excited to see at uh, CIO in the next few days? You know, one of the things I love about CIO is all the research and that's submitted by residents and medical students. And it's always exciting to see who wins the best project awards, which are going to be announced later this weekend. So I'll be excited to help them celebrate. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 